Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BloodDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I am the other one, Neil Bowen. And for today's episode, we're joined by writer and podcaster Daryl Baxter to discuss the horror in Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, as well as horror being a recurring theme throughout the Metal Gear Solid series. And I'll give the disclaimer now that we're going to discuss all manner of spoilers in regards to the Metal Gear Solid franchise, so you've been warned. Now, in addition to hosting the Pal Keys podcast, in which Daryl interviews guests, such as our very own Neil Bolt, about their favorite game and boss stage, Daryl has a new book coming out on October 25th of this year, titled The Making of Tomb Raider, which includes interviews with Tomb Raider 1 and 2 developers, detailing their experience working on both titles. So without further ado, Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jay. I'm pleased to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you on. And uh, Neil, like I said, was on your podcast, which was great to listen to him uh, share his enthusiasm and gush about Metal Gear Solid 2, a game we're going to touch upon today. But uh, before we kind of get into today's conversation, I have to bring up the fact that you had David Hayter on your podcast, Palkies, which... For those that don't know, is the voice of uh, Solid Snake and whatnot. How was that experience? Uh, very surreal, um, pretty much. Yeah. Um, just the fact that he kind of started the episode like in the voice of Solid Snake and said about <laughs> good to be on Palkies. That was a moment. I won't lie, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great. It was really good for about 40 minutes just chatting about everything and he even gave his opinion about backwards compatibility with PS5 and how you can't play Metal Gear Solid on it. It was just surreal. But uh, yeah. Very odd, <laughs> but great. Yeah. That bit of uh, your conversation with him really jumped out to me about backwards compatibility because that's been one of the uh, one of the recurring kind of soapboxes that I get on and Neil joins me on once in a while just talking about the fact that there are so many games out there that we love, but we have to kind of go through the pains of finding out the way to actually play them. Um, but I really enjoyed kind of your interviewing style and kind of just having this natural conversation with one of these kind of revered voice actors. And it wasn't all just about maybe what we already knew about him right it's kind of like mm-hmm. getting to getting getting him to maybe open up a little bit more and just kind of getting a sense of who david Hayter is and kind of his interest and things like that so that was a really phenomenal episode that uh if people haven't listened to palkies before that might be a fitting place for them to start before searching out neil's episode <laughs> which is downhill basically <laughs> same levels same levels it's good <laughs> I, like I said, I can always say that I've been on the same podcast as Solid Snake, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> no, thanks, man. I w- wish I could put that up against uh, any byline I have. But uh, <laughs> in terms of today, in talking about Metal Gear Solid 2 and the horror elements that are very prevalent within that game, in addition to the Metal Gear Solid uh, franchise, what is sort of an element of horror that you find in Metal Gear Solid 2 that's maybe the most prevalent in that experience? Oh, so it is Arsenal gear. So it's it's a strange one, Mega Solid Two, because you get like breadcrumbs of hints um, as to what's going on, but you're not really sure. You think it oh, is a nice coincidence, and then you eventually get to Arsenal gear, and you find yourself in a torture room. You find yourself you've escaped, and you are you're playing as Raiden, but he's naked, covering up the important bits, <laughs> and he's he's running around. Um, but it's almost like you're in kind of like a nightmare, one of the classic nightmare stereotypes where you're naked in an unfamiliar place. And you don't know where to go, and mix that in with, of course, the famous you know I'm doing it in like commas in the brackets here of Colonel Campbell, <laughs> who just has he was just glitching out really because. 
like you said, Jay, with the spoilers, I mean, it's not Colonel Campbell, it's an AI. You're talking to an AI. And every time, like, you get in contact with him, he's either saying about you must have beaten Metal Gear from the very first game, or talking about certain plants, or talking about how he'd seen Rose in a um, scene with another guy. And it just keeps going on. But I think because of the fact of the, uh, the codec chats, there's a lot of them which are unavoidable. So you come into contact with a lot of times where you just think, what the hell is going on? And then he mentions like turning the console off, which just makes you think, what am I doing? So yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much it in a nutshell, Jay. <laughs> How about you, Neil? What is an element really that kind of stands out for you in kind of the horror aspect of uh, MGS2? Yeah, it is very similar because it is, um, Kojima's got this thing for mixing the supernatural with technological uh, really well I mean in that game alone you have Vamp who you know is a vampire only because of Nano and uh, but this whole thing where it turns into this whole meta take on you know what's going on you know not only is you know the AI controlling Arsenal getting corrupted further and further causing you know these weird messages you're getting but you know the game itself is reacting to it and everything is going against you and it's which given Metal Gear Solid 2's whole thing of you being a proxy for Solid Snake in the first place you know and that's what Raiden is and it's it, it makes it really just at the time alone it was a bizarre thing to go through because you know I, the Raiden thing itself is you know, already this big like what the fuck is this about you know you, you've gone from you know the tanker section to this but then to just have your suspicions confirmed that it's like this whole big play and he's just literally you are you and him are just being played by the game and that's it does make it almost feel haunted in a way I feel it just it feels like the game is possessing you if you will in a, way, in a weird way and it's it's always stuck with me like that but even now it just it feels weird to sort of go through all that stuff and you know, we've seen games do it since, you know, that try the old tricks like, you know, Arkham Asylum and it's sort of like, oh, the game started again, nonsense and like that. But yeah, I think at the time, a lot of it was sort of wrapped up in wow, wow, I can't be Solid Snake um, rather than the fact that it was being a very clever fuck you, I don't want to make a sequel kind of game. You know, it's like, <laughs> so, so I'll literally give you the same game again. But you are the star. You, this person who could be anybody, this wet behind the ears person who feels that they are solid state but aren't. You know, and it's always my favorite thing about Kajim's games that they have that about them. And here, with that sort of supernatural element to it, really just sort of, you know, captured my attention brilliantly, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the first time I played this I was a kid so I was really latching on to the more supernatural horror aspects that were far more literal right like vamp mm. who was very much literally a vampire um, and so that element I was able to appreciate more because it was kind of in your face unmissable but then the older I got and the more I got to kind of revisit it you get to see like no there's actually quite a few layers to this and you get to appreciate more of the meta uh, elements and of course the first time you play MGS2 it's at least this is my experience it was so overwhelming just all the twists and turns and sort of the uh getting used to a lot of the sort of the kojima quirkiness in terms of just like 
him going off on these brief little tangents of his own interests and then compiling that all into this experience. But once you kind of get over maybe the shock of the overall Kojima experience and getting to kind of replay it and be like, okay, I'm expecting this, you do get to see little tidbits of information, things like that, like Daryl had said with the codec moments and glitching out and things. And you're like, wait a sec, that bit of dialogue, what did they mean by that? And it's one of those elements of Kojima's games that really allows a lot of them to age quite well in terms of just on the surface, you might assume it's one thing, but then in revisiting it, you get to find out, well, this is actually played out in a handful of ways, maybe, and just yeah. sort of gives you the greater overall appreciation of uh, his, again, his kind of like quirkiness in terms of him finding a way to take a lot of his interests and then put it into a project a project that maybe you wouldn't describe Metal Gear Solid as solely a horror game, and yet there's elements of horror in it throughout almost the entire existence of its uh, its life. Yeah, absolutely. I think it just shows that he does have such a keen interest in it. I mean, as much as he says himself that he isn't that into watching horror or anything like that, you know, he, he is pretty much a, a fraidy cat, as he puts it. You know, he doesn't like that, but he's fascinated by what it can do and approaches it in his own way. And yeah, when it comes to the Solid series, you know, from day one, it was pretty much there was the Psycho Mantis stuff and it went on from there all the way to five, which, you know, I think is probably one of the most out there games in a lot of ways, despite it being on the surface such a very, you know, it's you know, more of a game than ever, you know, than, than previous entries. Definitely, yeah. Daryl, I want to take it back though for a minute to something you were talking about, which is kind of the uh, the degrading of the uh, end game and whatnot, and how that really kind of makes for this trippy meta reality. Um, what is maybe a moment or the first instance of that that kind of really stands out to you as being one of those sort of defining moments of your uh, experience with MGS2? I think it was really when you saw Colonel Campbell again, but he was a skeleton instead, a different <laughs> angle. Mm. And he said, turn the game console off right now. Because I remember like when I first played that, I was uh, 12, I believe. And just playing that, I wasn't actually sure whether he was serious because I was thinking back to like Neil said about how the Psycho Mantis moment, it had you put the controller port into controller port two. And I was thinking, well, maybe this is another thing to do with the console instead. You know, PS1, controller two, PS2 could be turning the console off. I don't know. And that really kind of just shit me up because I just thought, if I press reset on this and I haven't saved, is this going to do something? You know, is what's going to happen? So that was a big moment for me. And especially because you're trapped in a room, you're walking up and down this room waiting for Solid Snake to arrive. And you're thinking, is this all the game is? I'm just going to be on a codec moment with their, their AI until the end of the game. <laughs> so yeah, that was a big moment. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting when this game was released and sort of the conversation about games maybe hadn't actually occurred yet at the time of this game's release and that idea of like player agency being a huge thing. And I think mm-hmm. that from especially like Metal Gear Solid 1 and of course 2, like that is an element that Kojima really kind of raised without having the game maybe explain that to you outright or something like that, right? But it kind of just making the player think about their own involvement in the process of like playing a game and seeing that play out in a way that again matches with his sort of quirky sensibilities and of course then it bleeds into these supernatural uh, entities that you're going to face off during the course of the game and displaying it and making them maybe more menacing than uh, they would be otherwise just at face value and that's an element of all of his games I think to a certain extent that it 
it really does tie into this having horror elements that I really love because then it kind of it makes you uncomfortable I think for the first time when you realize like whoa like they're addressed they're breaking that fourth wall essentially and whatnot and it's like they're speaking to you and all of a sudden you could almost put yourself in that character's shoes as much as you could from a, uh, a third person perspective and whatnot yeah. how about you Neil what was a uh, an element of Metal Gear Solid 2 that kind of stood out to you in terms of that meta reality that the game introduces yeah similarly along that um I think later on in that once he has reunited with Snake and you still get little snippets of it where like uh, the fish and mail thing happens is like what the fuck is this all about (laughs) again because you're just suddenly you're just in this tiny screen everything's still going on but it's basically playing the game over music blah 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 like that and it's like he took a second to catch on that it was spelt the wrong way and it's like okay this is like and even though even at that point where you've already been messed around a few times like when Daryl mentioned about the, the and telling you to tell, turn the console off there there was a hesitant hesitance to um, sort of know what to do about it because mm. you know, which is great because as you said you're thinking about well what happens if I do and it's like do I do it and it's like and it's, it passes quick enough that you are able to sort of carry on, but you're also thinking, did I miss something? Was there something I should have done? I did try it the <laughs> second time around, to be fair. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> but uh, once it was safe to, but yeah, it's like, I love that, just to be so weirdly experimental like that on that moment. But yeah, I think just when he did the, I know it was obviously like a repeat trick of like uh, the hideo screen you get on the psycho mantis fight which which i mean that was a bit more blatant where it was you know it's like okay well it's trying to replicate a tv with on standby off sort of thing but this was more you know the game's still going on but it's not and stuff like that and yeah as you said just the weird shit that the colonel starts saying that like you said about the uh, accusation of Rose seeing someone, and then as soon as Ryden's like, "What?" He's like, "No, nope, got to go." Bye. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> just like, just yeah. like the, the way it was just messing with him, it just got <laughs> just worse, and just slow reveal throughout that to the horror of Ryden that he finds out that he's basically just been picked to be Snake for a simulation, and he has to follow the simulation. And maybe he, if he doesn't, then Rose is in trouble. But then is he really, was Rose ever really there? Was she really in trouble? What, any of it? And it sort of, he and you are questioning everything that's happened up to that point. Because it's like, well, what was the simulation? What is the real thing? You know, but, you know it's quite smart considering though you are technically playing a simulation yourself. You know, he is in a very real thing, but it, makes him question that you know and normally when you have that oh it was all a simulation sort of dream type thing it's done very literally there it is like well no it's just everything was staged to perfection um and made to look how they wanted to it to look which again is very common you know political horror to Metal Gear is just some of the things that come up in terms of like uh how words are weaponized how you know Information is weaponized. Uh, all uh, that's you know those have both been really key themes in the two games that have also got the player playing as someone and playing as somebody else, you know, um, and taking on a role. I just think it's interesting that his you know Kojima's most 
divisive work in that regard with two and five uh, are never for the reasons they should be, but they always have the most interesting stories when you really dive into them, you know, and because there's such great you know, terror in how well he sort of gets how stuff works. I know, you know, we said before, there's a key thing to him where you think, well, he's just spurting stuff out until something sticks like that. And it's like, he's just a very much a train of consciousness sort of guy, I think. And a lot of it, he does it better in game than he does when he's trying to explain it out loud, if you know what I mean. Like it's the stuff in the background that works best that sticks with you and maybe puts a little chill down your spine when you, you think of the stuff that came true of Metal Gear Solid 2 and 5 and even Death Stranding. You know, there's all this stuff that is you know, not so much prophecy, if you will, but it's just like foresight, you know, knowing the way that things are going to go. And I, yeah, and obviously there's other people working there, but I think there's, you know, credit has to be given there. That it's a very, you know, a key thing in horror is, you know, seeing how the world is and how it's working and using it and weaponizing it. And I think Kojima has that touch for that. You know, and that's why horror in his games is so, you know, it, it's the very obvious stuff. And then there's the stuff underneath, which is like, you know, the sort of stuff that will terrify you because it could be happening, you know, in real life. And yeah, so it just that whole thing proved to be a jump off for me. Where, you know, I enjoyed the original Metal Gear Solid, but two just got me thinking I know that's very wanky oh you're just starting your 20s sort of thing to say at the time you know it's like oh this is like at a time when you know everything was like this big wow amazing the Matrix had come out and this had come out and Fight Club's a thing and all these these things that make you think when you're young and impressionable but yeah it's like the fact that it's stuck with me over time and I feel that you can see that in his games the more you play them is just remarkable to me because you know there's lots of game series that we've talked about already where I've detested the entries later in and it and when I was, you know no matter how much I love them anyway um with Kojima stuff there's always something you know it's like and it's one of those rare things where you can kind of see beyond what the game is and enjoy it as a whole and the things he does with it and even when he does things that displease most people that as I said that's what I enjoy the most because it, it feels like a very conscious choice to not end a game properly or to not let you play as who you want to or let you play as who you want to but make them an old man with back problems and it just goes on and on like that or even like you know have an all star Hollywood cast in a game and make you walk around delivering things for the entire game it, it, these are very him decisions where I feel he gets a lot of glee out of pissing people off in that way rather than the usual games industry thing of just pissing people off with like edgy material as you will yeah but I think also like his pissing people off it's done so in service at least of this story that he has crafted and while it is grandiose and it becomes cartoonish at quite a few points I find throughout the course of the series it's those decisions piss people off sometimes, but it feels like they're made at least in service of this narrative that he has crafted and whatnot, right? It's not just him trying to, like you said, be edgy or whatnot. It's more about, sure, there's elements of this that might 
not work for everybody, but at the same time, it is in service of this kind of overarching narrative. And I'll say one thing that has really been pleasant in a pleasant surprise in terms of revisiting Metal Gear Solid over the last few years is seeing how much foresight there was in some of these games and especially like MGS2, right? Some of the things we've been talking about and his handling of technology and how it becomes this political horror in a way, right? This idea that MGS2 is dealing with things like AI and misinformation, fake news, uh, deep fakes, and these different concepts now that are very sort of just prevalent in our society over the last few years. And yet in 2001, there was a game where that was the crux of the entire experience and whatnot. And yeah, you know, you don't want to give it too much credit and say it was, uh, it served as like a prophet or whatnot, but it is very strange that a game that many years ago was essentially telling a modern story, even if now you look at it and you're like, well, this has aged maybe in one regard or another. And yet when you remove some of the more cartoonish, like my all the twin stuff and the cloning and whatnot, which at the same time, though, cloning, who knows, in the next 20 years might be more prevalent. But it's it's refreshing, again, to come back to a game and it's not sort of just this rose-tinted glasses, oh, I remember this from my childhood and whatnot. It's like, no, there's actually qualities to the storytelling here that have aged quite well in a lot of ways that are surprising that, if anything, I think that it's made MGS2 stand out to me more so over the last few years as being one of the higher points in the series where, I don't know, maybe when uh, when I played this initially, I was of the age where I was pissed off. I was one of those people that was pissed <laughs> off, like, oh, what? what I, I don't, who the hell is this new young kid? I don't want to play this idiot and basically have to do this whole training section over again and stuff like that. But in just seeing sort of, or appreciating rather, and fleshing out that meta story element and whatnot, it has made for a game that has aged, has gracefully aged in more ways than one. Yeah. And I think it embraces its absurd and surreal side so well that that was the complaint back then. You know, it's, oh, it's all nonsense. They just talk on forever and ever and ever. Some of that's valid, to be fair, um, but at the same time, it's just it, again very reflective of the man at the helm of it. You know, just the stream of consciousness, ideas. You know, <laughs> very much the guy smoking a bowl and just chatting shit for for, for seven hours. But you know, it doesn't mean that it's all bullshit just because of that. You know, it's, if if the knowledge is in there and the insight is in there, it comes out, and in, in his case, it does. Daryl, is there an element of Kojima's kind of blending of technology and horror that uh, stands out to you the most from MGS2? I mean, it really has to be like the deep fake that we know now, you know, because I'm not sure actually with the characters whether when they're, when they're in the codec call, whether they actually see the person, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. But I think that kind of has to be illusion of when Raiden communicates with Campbell that he can see them um, I'm sure anyway hopefully uh, correct if I'm wrong Neil <laughs> <laughs> well it's it because it, it comes if you think about it it comes up in the first game as well where the whole Master Miller thing being yes. the snake it's like surely he knows what Miller looks like, <laughs> yeah. like, like and yeah it just ends up being this whole thing for him I think that's a big thing actually because I mean when you get to like say the meta side of Metal Gear Solid 2 I mean you've got Raiden who's called Jack his fiance is called Rose, so there's a Titanic reference there, you know. So I kind of feel like there's a factor there where, and I think this relates to Kojima as well, where he always bases these games, you know, that relates to Hollywood movies. He wants to base games yeah. like a Hollywood movie, and I think that goes into the fact of Ryder because 
you know, from his appearance, he's like the dashing, you know, Hollywood blockbuster type actor, you know, who you kind of like think to be a, a hero in a movie. Yeah. And that's kind of like someone's idea of a hero um, in a movie as well. So I kind of feel like with that, it's like how someone grows up to look up to a hero in their chosen media. And I think that relates yeah. to how Raiden is on Metal Solid 2 and how Hideo Kojima also kind of saw it when he grew up. Because I think I'm, I'm sure I read somewhere that, you know, a lot of films he saw was inspiration for what he's been doing in the series. So I think yeah. that um, comes a lot from it. But uh, yeah, and also, of course, with Arsenal Gear, you know, going to New York. I mean, I think that's a Titanic reference as well. Um, but yeah, very strange. <laughs> Hitting the iceberg that was the centre of American politics. So yes. uh, it's a... Or was it no banks? Sorry, was it? Yes, yes, that was it. <laughs> it's hard to remember because they had to cut the whole thing out because of nine eleven. So, so basically, yeah. just like it's a white screen now, and here it is. It's like, no, it's mad. It really is. But yeah, the fact that it's released in November two thousand one, and then we get the game in Europe, you know, four months later because of you know what's happened, and yeah, it's not to me that it's twenty years now. It really is because a lot of the themes, like you say, Neil, seem really relevant now. It's crazy. Yeah, and it's like you know stuff that wowed me about it then you know it just has gained fresh relevance over time and it just and I see that you know he likes to repeat those themes a lot and his constant sort of um, you know shrug of the shoulders when he has to do a sequel is pretty much like yeah it's the last one I don't really care about doing this anymore whilst also being really fucking enthusiastic about every single one he does it, it just I love it because it does just given certain games in the series it's really language sort of well if you don't like what I've done with it so what <laughs> you wanted it and I'm just doing it for you uh, and it, you know Metal Gear Solid 5 very much feels like that with that whole end grind is like you want it to be this super soldier stealth superstar out there here you go be this ever and ever and ever and keep doing it keep doing it keep doing it I'm not going to tell you when you're going to stop uh, I'm not going to tell you when it ends you just keep going until you think it's finished like that and I love that because it does very much feed into this idea that uh, <laughs> that character is pretty much embracing that and saying yeah you know what I am I'm going to do this forever and ever and just the stuff that game changes about the, the things you know about the whole series that and four you know with you know Ocelot's sort of you know, grand reveal as being you know, the, the big guy behind everything sort of thing just makes it even more interesting that you know, he basically helped orchestrate this whole simulation for Raiden into like that whilst also playing off against people that he's been working for you know, what makes us look great anyway just the constant like ah I'm working for you but no I'm working for you no but I'm working for me <laughs> just like <laughs> and just like by the time you get to uh, you know, four, it's just like you know, full on hammy villain. You know, just every line is just dripping. It's just yeah, he's just, and then you know that goes into something I wanted to talk about as well. There's a lot of body horror uh, to Metal Gear, you know, and you know, Ocelot is a good example of that. Where you know, though we know different later on, the whole idea of when he gets his arm cut off in the first game and then has Liquid's arm grafted on and then assumes the persona of Liquid voice and all and you know is possessed by that arm if you will stuff like that that you know when you know a common theme as we said with this series is 
when there's something supernatural or really weird about the series, there's usually an explanation for it that's quite, you know, technology-based or just someone playing the long game in Arcelot's case, pretty much always. So it, it's, you know, stuff like that is happening. But body horror happens a lot because there's just the constant thing of viruses in the game, you know, the fox die virus, um, you know, the, the vocal parasites in five, you know, the virus that, you know, basically tries to end the AI in two it just it constantly goes on you know it's this idea that there's always something invasive in you and that you never really have control too is very good for that with you know the nano in the body of Raiden and as much like the snake are pretty much constantly keeping a tabs on him you know and know if there's every move know what he's going to do know where he is and yeah that, that's you know, the whole idea of like being very Online, if you will, you know, again, himself, he's just perpetually around, and it feels, you know, that sort of feeds into fresh trauma for him you know, as it goes on, because it's like, first, you know, someone used his essence, his very self, to make him fight when he was a child, and then he grows up, thinks he's got it, some sort of structure and solidity in his life, and then finds out he's been used again, you know, both physically and mentally. And then essentially gives his entire body over to technology to and has to sacrifice that body over and over again in four and rising. It's, I, I just love that. And then to get to five, where you know the whole reveal of Venom Snake not being Big Boss and being his pilot, you know, from uh, Ground Zeroes. Um, who they, you know, they fucked up his entire life to just give Big Boss a place to hide out and do what he wants for a bit. And the, you know, the really messed up thing of that is that he accepts it. You know, you know, he's, his anger is very short-lived, at feeling like he's been duped somewhat, but his loyalty to Big Boss, and this, again, reading maybe too much into it, but this, it's very familiar with you know, how there's this insane amount of loyalty to people that really don't deserve it, you know, goes around in a lot of places on social media as it is and uh, he's then fine with being big boss you know he doesn't care about his own identity anymore he's so ingrained in it he believes almost believes it himself in much the same way Raiden believes he could be the next solid snake um but, you know, he's taken to the next extreme and uh, there's just constant sort of body horror stuff like that between that and just things happening I mean like I said five has that whole you know, vocal parasite thing which you know, goes back into the the use of words being a weapon and ties into the whole you know use of words as misinformation and making you know American English sort of this whole thing everyone must speak our language we don't want any of the other languages to be in existence and the best way to do that is to kill them uh, that's you know, a very <laughs> blunt take, you know, or, or, but it is very much how someone like Kojima sees the West, you know, and Western tactics and things. And yeah, so it's just, yeah, body horror for me is just always a fascinating thing in that series. Well, it's interesting, too, to see how he's able to take elements of horror and apply it to other thematics that his games touch upon, but more specifically and literally in the games are the bosses, which... For me, that's always been the thing that has stood out to me as the biggest defining trait of the Metal Gear Solid series <laughs> is that you have this guy that at 
least at the inception, he is simply promoted as being like the ultimate espionage soldier and all these things. But then it's him facing off against these supernatural beings who throughout the course of the series, I would say grow more and more supernatural, but it feels very fitting. Again, this is Kojima establishing his sort of Mm -hmm. weird quirks and sensibilities and storytelling and game making over all the years that it just works. It falls into place perfectly. They're for a majority of the time, just human enough or resemble humans enough that you're like, okay, I could see this, but then there's a guy controlling bees or there's a vampire or there's a guy on roller skates, planting bombs on an oil rig. Like there's these various different sort of oddities. And yet the horror element I think has always been most prevalent within the bosses. I mean, Daryl for you, what are maybe a few of the bosses that have really stood out to you as being great examples of horror in a game that is largely not a horror game? To be honest, I think a lot of them has actually been from Metal Gear Solid 4, really, because mm. the Absolutely. the Beauty and the Beast groups is just... Because the thing is, Metal Gear Solid 4, it's a game that's based thematically on memories, really, yeah. on nostalgia and memories, really, how it skews, how a memory skews like certain people. And with the bosses there, it really does, because they are traumatic from war. And it kind of defines them, and it defines the environment that we're in as well. But also, on the flip side, because of nostalgia, hmm. their names are also based off the first bosses of Metal Gear Solid 1 as well. So, you know, you've got something like Screaming Mantis, for example, you know, or um, another one which yeah. is Wolf, but it's actually set where you fought Sniper Wolf in the first game. And when you beat these bosses, you have to, you know, like, <laughs> subdue them because they're walking towards you. But while they are, they have this way yeah. of almost like kind of like rotting like the environment that's around and it's very creepy and it really kind of like makes an impact because it <laughs> makes you think really about just how traumatic their their lives were previously when they became these bosses as well so it makes you think about how nostalgia could be almost like a trick really to how mm-hmm. it can skew like someone's memory of how it used to be but how it actually was as well especially when you go to shadow Moses to snake because you're walking around and you're coming across certain memories where you think, oh, great, I remember I need to hear that soldier goes through footprints of these. But then when you go to, like, say, the actual uh, room, you've got all that gecko everywhere. Suddenly suddenly the music comes in and, you know, it's just, boom, you're straight back into the modern era and you're trying to escape thousands of these little bastards and you're just thinking, what's (laughs) going on? So, yeah, I think we're about to get something forward they are the bosses really that kind of really kind of like showcase that horror really more so than what the end did in Metal Gear Solid 3 more so than what Vamp did in Metal Gear Solid 2 I, I feel like before it really kind of like you know puts a point across that war is awful and nostalgia can be your own enemy as well yeah I think it also gets weaponized by Osama repeatedly for his run because he you know he orchestrates all these things you know he repeatedly uses the framework of Shadow Moses to make things happen, and in four, it's like he does that and stuff from it. Gets up to you know, he has Arsenal gear, he has this you know, Foxhound unit of his own, and again, and wanting to control his own army again. And just it all goes back to what he believes it was like he's trying to find the memories of himself of what it used to be like and how he felt and his adoration and love for big bots, you know, and work that. And he, I it's almost like his grief in a way as much as he is you know doing all these other things behind the scenes he's feels this sort of desire to make right by big boss and do everything that should the way it should have been done yeah and uh 
yeah, it. I mean, basically the whole play for Ocelot, the entire series after three, is that he's on a revenge mission to, to mm. make everything better, and I think that plays out brilliantly like that. Um, yeah, that 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 particular set of bosses is very much like that, and I think even in themselves and the design, there's some very cool, you know funky design there you know the laughing octopus that fight mm. was actually mm-hmm. quite creepy you know it's like absolutely the whole you know tech camo the, the arms everything like that it was just I, the, that filled me with dread that fight and just other things just the very the finality of it this this idea it's like you're gonna die you know, snake is it now at the age where it's like you know you the clones die at this age you know that you, you know you're only a perfect clone up until this age and then and you know another pointed thing of making him this old man is you know tying into this like oh you want to remember snakes how he was and it's like but you know he's not like that anymore you know he's past the peak of his powers and i just love <laughs> i just love how that whole game just rounds it off the nostalgia off just for that brilliant you know the credits rolling and it just saying big boss's name like that and you know a person who's supposed to be dead and then it just fading back into him being appearing and just that it's, <laughs> in a game that's trying to sort of poke fun at nostalgia that was like definitely him you know Kojima saying no nah, we've got to have it we've got to do it we've got to have him back like that sort of thing it's like just have this sort of resolution to their story um, yes those bosses great example I'd say of, of uh, horror led bosses yeah absolutely and, and the bosses I mean they they just tie so well into that theme that really does connect all the games, and that being the war, like the role that war plays in creating monsters, right? Mm. Uh, quite literally, in this sense. But it it's an element that I've always appreciated about the Metal Gear Solid franchise and the way that they introduce the bosses. And it's a, just a little thing, but just like we get with all of our uh, main characters and whatnot, we get their character name and then we get the voice actor name, and that. Giving that same sort of uh, intro to the bosses, which of course you have to defeat, you're going to go through them to continue the game and progress. Though taking that moment and giving them almost sort of the same credibility as a protagonist character, I think does a really good job of just signifying or reinforcing their importance to this world and sort of the themes and the storytelling that uh, Kojima is taking on. But also, I think it does a good job of just reinforcing the fact that. Each of these bosses is a milestone more than just challenging from a gameplay perspective. They have a, a there is a significance to them that is greater than this is just another person in my way. Um, and whether it be tying them all into one of the various squads that Snake has to sort of face off against over the course of the games, sure. But also, I think it's the greater idea that it that Kojima really does sort of challenge our perception again, the player's role in things, but also, I mean, the greater. Uh, real world issues surrounding like war and things like that and whatnot and how nobody is unscathed in a conflict even if you're viewing one side as being more powerful than the other everybody is suffering in a certain extent and I mean the like you had said about uh, the beauties and the beasts I think that that's again a very literal example and yet Kojima's able to make that somewhat poignant like Daryl said where at the end of it they're walking towards you literally um, which I think it's one of those one of those brief moments in games that, especially games that have a good deal of uh, combat and violence in them, that kind of like makes you take pause for a second. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of games do that. And a lot of games you get pretty desensitized after a certain point. But 
I find that largely the violence of boss battles across all the Metal Gear Solid games, they've those have always been the most poignant moments of it, whether it's uh, sort of like a cutscene where we're learning more about Snake and or we're learning about just a tragic backstory of one of these characters. And I think that's the key, right, is that mm. a majority of the figures are tragic figures in the history of Metal Gear. They're not just sort of these, uh, well... I think all of the villains at certain point uh, become caricatures or sort of cartoonish, whether it be their delivery or, again, a, uh, a large gentleman on roller skates planting bombs. It's still there's a tragedy tied to it that I think is really at the core of creating good characters. Right. Is that yeah. nobody is sort of birthed just out of I'm good, I'm evil. They might be doing evil things, but at least Kojima is making them giving a sliver of sympathy maybe to them in their origins. And I think that um, Guns of the Patriots does that really well. Not to say that the other games don't, but I think that Guns of the Patriots does a good job of taking these uh, adversaries that are literally, majority of them, cased in metal. uh, And yet they are very... It's made clear to the player that these are people, first and foremost, that were crafted into these monstrosities uh, through the worst of ways and conditions and whatnot. And that you mentioned Jay as well as the fact with Rosalot essentially mm-hmm. throughout you controlling Solid Snake through through the games and I only noticed this last year the first boss that you faced ever is Ocelot's and the last gate last boss that you face is Ocelot's as well you know it's the only one it's the bookend from the start and the end mm. and I also mm. kind of feel like when you face the whole Beauty Beast units, and then you face Ocelot at the end. It's almost like he's seeing redemption as well, because every punch, every kick that you have with him, he's remembering who he used to be. And I think it kind of makes him remember how he fought Snake in the very first game at Shadow Moses as well. Because you see the lifeguard, you know, like change like throughout the game and the music. And I even now I find that incredible and it works. You know, and I feel I, yeah, and I feel like he really makes an impact. And I think narratively it kind of like completes Ocelot's story as well, even as far back as not Gear Solid 3. Yeah, I mean, you can see 4 in its entirety as the test, you know, for Snake to be as good as Big Boss so that Ocelot can have an adversary that is as good as that, you know, because it's made clear, as we said, that he's basically in love with Big Boss. He adores him absolutely, and to the point that he just keeps that whole story going in five, you know, like he does. And, yeah, it just, it does feel like a very fitting end to that sort of triangle, if you will, you know, between those guys. And you can see it in the, the complete disdain he gives Raiden in two as well. It's just like, yeah, right. it, he, you know, they repeat that torture scene, you know, with him that they did in the Metal Gear Solid mm. with Snake. And you could just, tell it's just like he doesn't care there's no invested interest in it for him it's like he's just like yeah I know what's going on this has to happen but it just because it's, you know, anything that isn't dealing with anyone who's related to boss is he doesn't care he doesn't want to know like that because it, that's he sees that as his pappy you know <laughs> he's a it's <laughs> old man. I find it funny though, actually, the fact that this is a simulation and yet I've still got the same job of pressing the key on the torture device. He's like, yeah. I've got this job again. <laughs> so, oh, well, the, the job list. Oh, I'm doing the eliminations again. <laughs> Not again. He's a man that takes pride in his work, no matter what that may be. <laughs> torture. Wednesday again. <laughs> One of the elements of Kojima's storytelling that 
I've really been able to appreciate through the lens of horror more so is, again, sort of this like whodunit aspect to the storytelling and whatnot and who is actually pulling the strings. And this is an angle of sort of the political horror that we talked about and the sort of conspiracy angle and the Illuminati angle, if you will, in that the narratives throughout a majority of these games and it's I think it's most prevalent in two as being the setup for this and then it's explored furthermore moving forwards in the series. That being that the two really challenges you and specifically the player to try to grapple with the reality that the information you're being given might be complete bullshit. Um, And that's an element of a game that I think is really fascinating in that it it makes for an experience that's more than just like good storytelling or a fun game to literally play. It's more about kind of just challenging the way that we as people process information and sort of like vetting information through reliable sources and whatnot. And to see that specifically Sons of Liberty dabble in the elements that kind of come off of that in terms of, again, this like idea of misinformation and fake news and these things that are very prevalent right now in our society and in media and things like that. And to have a game dating all the way back to 2001, that that was such a central core idea. And yet it really is expanded upon throughout the course of the entire series. And seeing people or different characters and whatnot really challenge the player because you're given a moment like that. And I don't know how you could play a Kojima game and really not be somewhat skeptical of all of the people that are around your protagonist, right? This idea that Sure, the first, take something like Death Stranding maybe, like the first 10 hours a character might be perceived as one thing, but in the next they could be a complete opposite at the blink of an eye. And it's it's an interesting way to, or an interesting approach to storytelling for a series that like Neil and I have kind of talked about over the, uh, over the last few months, this idea that people's perceptions of Kojima, more specifically, like the Metal Gear games or Death Stranding, in that people are very easy to sort of like label it as one thing. And yet it's a series that I find it really ages quite well in the sense that when you go through and you look at all these different strands of storytelling or maybe ways in which they challenge the player, not just from a challenging gameplay perspective, it makes for an experience that is much, I would say, deeper than somebody like me who maybe doesn't necessarily... I'm not as fascinated by all of the lore that connects all the games. Like, I, maybe I don't get into the weeds as much as uh, as my dear co-host does. But it's uh, which I don't shame him for. It's just sometimes the overarching cartoonishness of sort of like they're a clone, they're a spy type thing might get a little much for me. But I think that it's interesting that it's a theme that Kojima returns to frequently to the degree that he fleshes it out by the time you get to five to the point where it's like I'm actually starting to buy into that maybe lore that I wasn't three games ago or something like that. It really just, it's a beautiful progression through all of the different Metal Gear games. And it's, it's always, uh, it, I mean, even in revisiting some of them and getting to play back up to five, getting to see elements that, oh, I recognize this from Metal Gear Solid three or something like that. And just really seeing it culminate both from a storytelling, uh, standpoint, but also gameplay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just to go back on the whole, uh, the protagonist thing, uh, another common theme with them is that they are generally people who have been forced into being, you know, these killing machines. You know, they, it's, you know, in Raiden's case, he was made a soldier as a child, and as I said, and uh, Snake, Solid Snake's case, he's a clone, a, a great soldier. You know, in the case of Big Boss, it's like you know, he 
joined because out of loyalty to the boss and betrayed by that and then betrayed by the very political system that he was fighting for and it's just constantly like that with that series it just these people that are just thrust into these situations and then their reactions and the way they deal with it and how human they are at the end of it it's fascinating you think of it you know everyone gives away something of themselves in that series over time you know to, you know big boss is disillusioned with his entire country and needs to make his own you know solid you know is basically trying to be you know almost a pathological James Bond copy you know it's whilst not trying to show any emotion about anything anybody or anything and you know Ryan after the betrayal of Metal Gear 2 Solid 2 is you know can't get over it you know and ends up just you know, giving his entire body to trying to do better and be better as much as you know his appearance in 4 is almost Kojima's way of saying oh you didn't like the fact that he was this androgynous you know, you know guy you know so who isn't Solid Snake so now we'll make him even cooler and we'll make Solid Snake this old fart you know, it's like <laughs> it's like, I did like that particular fuck you to it, whilst also balancing out by doing very unpleasant things to Ryan throughout that game, including <laughs> crushing him with an entire ship, which was, uh, oh man, God, he was like, if ever there was a point where because he got a bit too emo, that was probably it. It's just like, yeah, yeah, that I am the lightning thing. It's just. <laughs> I love it. It's absolute cheese, but it's just the best kind of cheese. <laughs> yeah, as I said, all the way up to Venom Snake. You know, just he's was just unlucky enough to have been next to Big Boss in the hospital and go, you know what? I got a plan here. Let's just, let's just use this guy for everything and brainwash him into thinking he's you. And it's like it just seems horribly cruel. And like I said, then presented with that information. He has a little punch of a mirror and decides, you know what? Yeah, carry on. Though, I do think that is up to, open to interpretation. Where at that point, it's like, as the player, it's like your decision. And it's like, are you going to carry on? You're going to keep going out there, or are you just going to turn away now because you're doing the truth? And it's like, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It, as much as you can say, maybe reading too much into that sort of thing. That's how it felt for me. Daryl, I guess uh, for you, are there any horror elements throughout the series that we kind of glossed over maybe from any of those uh, games that really has kind of like stood out to you over the years? Anything maybe that uh, you've gotten a better appreciation for maybe or an element that from the gate kind of jumped out at you? It could either be like characters or specific uh, moments. Yeah, sure. There is one actually um, that kind of made an impact on me on the first game. It was the cliffhanger at the end, you know, where you think everything's mm. over and then suddenly you're brought to the logo with Metal Gear Solid 1 or 2 or mm. 3 and suddenly you get these sound bites of someone talking and you're not sure what's going on. You think that's the end of the game. I mean, you know, with the first mm. game, you've got Oslot talking to someone on the phone. And, you know, he reveals that there's a third brother, Solidus, and he's talked to a president. And you think, oh, okay, so the third brother is a president. Okay. And then the second game, you know, which is, well, because the thing is, when I first played Metal Gear Solid 2 at the end, I thought anyway that, you know, as how games were at that time, you would fight through a horde of enemies and then you'd eventually face the final boss, which I thought was going to be the Patriots. I don't know what it was going to be. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I thought it was going to be like a group of like a new big cell 
operative group, the super page, whatever. Um, yeah. But instead, you know, we got a final Solidus and that was it. But then we got the cliffhanger again, the fact that they all died 100 years ago. And I remember the shiver up my, up my back that I got. You know, it yeah. was just like, what? And then obviously the 12-year-old me's thinking, are we going to time travel now? Like with Solid Snake. Um, <laughs> and then, Which, it, yeah, yeah, in a way we did, you know. Yeah, uh, that's it. The next one was like, yeah, now you're back in the 60s. And the, the way he did present that at first, you know, not telling you much details about what was going on, did make it seem like, okay, maybe we are. So going back to that. Yeah. But it, that whole thing was just like, again, is another thing that has aged really well because, you know, it's, the reveal is the world's actually being controlled by an algorithm, mm. you know, and it's like fucking hell. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's like that's, everything's algorithms. So yeah, it was just it's one of those things that replaying it with the the fresh insight of these, you know, the last few years. It's like fucking hell. This game <laughs> just keeps doing it. <laughs> well, that's an element that I think again, if we didn't have in two very clearly challenging the player to challenge their the way that they're interpreting information or that they're basically teaching them to question everything i think that that element that feeds into the larger conspiracy and the patriots element i think that's what makes it really work in a way and it's sold in a way that i still think is probably better than a lot of other games like the the one that comes to mind that dabbles as heavily in conspiracy for me would be like resident evil right the whole Mm. umbrella there behind everything but in that instance, it's more of like, okay, they're the boogeyman that's behind the curtain type of thing from a narrative standpoint. But I find that with Metal Gear Solid, it's so much maybe more ingrained into just the experience of playing those games because it because quite literally we are having our understanding of things be challenged frequently and it's encouraging us to challenge it. So it feels more like what we're literally playing through or experiencing is being maybe artificially manipulated or literally manipulated by them. Um, It's, again, to talk about sort of like the meta angle of these games and whatnot, it's a quality that I think maybe I read too much into, but it's one that I am constantly thinking about now when I get to go back and revisit it in a way that it has me reading into things more so than I would other games that I've played uh, half a dozen times and whatnot that don't amount to anything more. But with Metal Gear, it feels like I might, sure, I might be reading into little tidbits more than I should be, and it doesn't end up resulting in anything, but I'm always taken aback by games that are able to make themselves have somewhat of a fresh experience every time you play it, whether the first time you have to replay a Kojima game, it's because how the hell do you process all that information in one sitting, uh, and all the twists and turns and connecting the dots and whatnot, but it's something that I think has given these games, or at least this is uh, more anecdotal for me, but it's just I, I look forward to replaying these games more so than I do probably other things from both an understanding standpoint, but also just seeing the ways in which, like Neil has been saying, kind of the way that he's able to insert these sort of like fuck yous to the audience sometimes, or just challenging expectations throughout the course of the game series, uh, which is something that I definitely appreciate, you know, the more... And I wasn't able to appreciate it when I was a kid playing them, right? Because you kind of just... You take all those supernatural elements at face value and that's the end of it, right? It's kind of like, yeah, two is the one with the vampire, three is the one with the the guy that controls the bees and whatnot. But it's very refreshing to have a series that is as revered as Metal Gear Solid is, and yet I'm still finding new things that maybe, maybe they don't always sort of redefine my experience with Metal Gear Solid, but it's something that 
adds at least a new tick of like, oh, okay, this is something that I'll look out for maybe on my my next replay or thinking about how that factors into the timeline all those yeah. years later. I mean, as a series, it is one where in most games cases, I think four doesn't get it because it's locked away on PS3 now. That's pretty much, yeah, it does seem to be getting to play it most of the time. Um, but there's always this reappraisal about the ones that get shit, you know. There's this you know, common nod along about the, the first game and the third game is like, oh yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah, we don't need to discuss them any further why they're brilliant like that. And then two and five, you know, five have noticed it more and more that there's, you see more and more people that go, you know what? No, I like this better. I like that better. Usually with the caveat, like, but they didn't end it properly. It, you know, it had an ending. You know, it, it may not be the ending you wanted, but it does have a conclusion. And the conclusion is, this is it. You are who you are. Your choice. Carry on or don't. Uh, and that's it. Again, going back to the players thing. But I think his abrasive sort of um, sensibility, it's no wonder he's a big pal with Nicholas Wending Refn, you know, whose films are pretty much the closest thing to Kojima in terms of film style, you know, because he just makes these things that either you are totally on board with, look a lot into what's being said beyond what's being said, or you fucking hate them, you know. And uh, I've seen that with like the Neon Demon, you know, where. People, there are people who, like me who think it's brilliant and adore it for what it is and then there are people that just think it's wanky art trash uh, but then I'm on the other side of say Only God Forgives you know where I just think that film is boring and awful and then there are people that claim it's a masterpiece and then there's Drive which everyone goes yeah great Drive and which is that that's his Metal Gear Solid so <laughs> um, yeah so I think that's good I was just going to um, point out another sort of major horror thing that strikes me in terms of the entire series. And I think that's um, the opening to five, the, the whole hospital thing, which I said before is very John Carpenter-esque, which I think is very deliberate because a lot of the, it being set in the 1980s, a lot of it is like you know, 1980s style influences from the music to certain things that happen in the game. Uh, but that, and just the, you know, the ghost of Volgan, essentially, you know, being hounding you as this man on fire throughout. Um, it's just nightmarish that, and just the constant, you know, the murder, the slaughter going on of everyone who's in the hospital. Whether they you know, they don't deserve it, they're just there. But because you're there, you know, they're getting killed and murdered, and just the batshit way it ends. You know, it's like you're riding on a horse away from the man on fire, and then there's a fucking flame whale in the sky, and then. Then everything's normal again for a bit. <laughs> just like, but as an opening goes, you know, it's just like it's so you know so unlike the rest of the game. Uh, you know, when they sort of make you repeat that at the end with the knowledge that of who you really are, it, it's you know, fascinating. I, I really, I really do enjoy that whole thing. But that opening, the whole game has something about it in terms of atmosphere and vibe that just feels mean and blunt you know the violence is very much like you know, every gunshot to the head is a squelch you hear that hard squelch and rip as it goes through someone's head it's like it's just so matter of fact you know like that but the worst thing about it is just how you know when you're a horror fan you're kind of conditioned to that sound it's like yeah that was good that's a headshot that sort of thing it's like and it's it's nuts the stuff that game gets away with in terms of how 
mean spirited it is about war and well, you know, how true it is. You know, it's just like, yeah, this is it. If you choose to hurt people, it's going to hurt them bad. That's it. And yeah, you know, it's not spec ops the line. You know, it's not going like that. It's a very subtle take, I would say. On it. You know, it's, it's not putting it front and center going, yeah, war is bad. This is why. You know, it's like, no, it's like it's presenting the, the allure of war is there. And you can see why people get excited by, oh, look, you're building your own country effectively still like that. And it's like, and it presents it like that, but then sets in with that repetition later to sort of make you think, oh, you know, this is getting to be a bit of a grind. And it's like, and it really depends on how much you enjoy that core loop of violence and you know, just doing what you do. Yeah, again, off tangent, but <laughs> five, five of the favorites. <laughs> I think bringing up uh, Spec Ops The Line is a great example, right? Because I would say while that game is largely successful for the type of game it is and the commentary it's trying to make, the ways in which that handles the concept of war and violence and the ramifications of that compared to MGS5 is, is that Kojima... I find that as sometimes he can be a little long-winded maybe in cutscenes, but he doesn't ever... It, it never feels like the violence brings anything to a grinding halt, like Spec Ops The Line does. Spec Ops The Line, right? You have those moments, especially with, like, the white phosphorus, where yeah. you're seeing... You're quite literally forced to walk through the ramifications of your actions, right? And that might as well be sort of, like, slamming on the brakes and being like, you have to look at this as is unavoidable. Whereas the way that Metal Gear Solid V handles the violence, either on a combat-by-combat uh, combat basis or within the storytelling, I find that it is continuously moving through. And you, sure, you might see it, but it never feels like he's giving us this morality lesson. It's more sort of representational of war and reality, which is that violence happens and it's horrible, and yet the gears of war or the cogs of war don't stop moving, right? Yeah. It's kind of continuous. It doesn't really ever stop for any long period of time because there's more killing and greed to be had right within the sort of war machine that is uh the world and whatnot and again while maybe kojima's world is a little more fantastical in certain instances i find that that's an element that throughout all of his games has again aged well but also in revisiting them it's kind of just like the older you get the more you can appreciate it, obviously because again like when i played most of these i was a kid and it's like okay well yeah this is just another violent video game but in seeing sort of how we become desensitized to it and yet that grim grittiness is still mm -hmm. there and it if anything it grows right because the games become like neil had said sort of more um the violence becomes more impactful in a way that it wasn't early yeah. on and that might be a technological thing or whatnot but i think Overall, like when it scales towards the concluding conclusion of the series, it's an element that I think um, really sort of reinforces the overall horrors of not only the supernatural horrors, but the horrors of war and political horror yeah. in general. I mean, it doesn't even stop in five uh, when you basically start having to off half your team because of the virus. It's just like it is very much dealt with like another job while it's happening at the base it's like nah you carry on doing what you're doing we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out all the while you're getting these constant reminders this one's died this one's died this one's died and it's like part of you's like should I, I should be doing something what do I do and it's like but you're left helpless to it it's like no it happens people die you, you have to accept it and then you are literally called in to deal with it yourself and it's just like and then you are having to shoot your own men shoot point black in the face and yeah, the trauma of it not being felt 
by Venom Snake but beyond like no you know what we'll use this as a reason to go and continue our fight you know like that because they went against the wrong person and that's why they ended up with this you know, horrible situation yeah, it's just, it's yeah it, that sequence is just disturbing for a lot of reasons just because the whole way that the parasite stuff works in that game and you know the stuff you dread the most in that game ends up being parasite based it's just that where it's like it's you know your men aren't really trying to hurt you in that scene that section they're not you know some of them attack slightly but you know they never do much damage and it's just like you know you have to do something but they gotta just keep trying and it's just yeah it's kind of a bummer you know just to do that you, you know as stupid as some of the names are with the, the naming system that is just exquisite in that game you know but, with the, but you know it it's almost XCOM levels of like oh that guy he was like one of my top guys in this area sort of thing like that and then you end up having to just shoot in the face point blank with no apologies nothing just done because uh, there's no hope for him uh, and it's just ooh, yeah it's maybe a little on the nose in some ways but the same way I just I like the helplessness of that you know the whole situation and how it is as you said the cogs of war just continue on and say well no we've got to get on with what we're doing so deal with this and then we'll carry on and do whatever we have to do and it does and it, it resolves itself for a bit and that's it you're done and and, and the game continues like nothing ever happened it becomes very routine yeah <laughs> But uh, I guess sort of in yeah. wrapping up, Daryl, were there any elements that uh, you wanted to kind of chat about that I passed over? Um, I think it really just the fact with Kojima, the fact that he's aware of what the player may have experienced before the game comes out. And mm. what I mean by this is the fact that, especially with Metal Solid 2, you get this um, narrative that, you know, Raiden has been in so many hundreds of VR missions, you know, relentlessly training through. And to a sense, like Meta, I mean, the player has as well, because we forget that between Metal Gear Solid 1 and Metal Gear Solid 2, we had another game called Special Missions, where you could play through so many VR missions, you know, um, face a, <laughs> uh, a Godzilla-sized enemy, you know, do mystery <laughs> missions, and then eventually unlock enough missions to, you know, play as Ninja. And, you know, back in those days, you know, that's what you'd have to, you know, kind of like refresh your memory of Metal Gear Solid to kind of like keep going that, that love, that fun of playing the series, because that's yeah. all you, you really had. And especially, you know, back in that day in 98, 99, you couldn't really play Metal Gear 1 or Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, you know, on the MSX. Um, So I think Kojima is really aware with what the player is experiencing at the time as well, because you are playing hundreds of VR missions to kind of budge your time. By then you think you are an expert, perhaps. Mm. I didn't at all. But maybe other players did at the time with special missions. Mm. And they come into Metal Gear Solid 2, and they get an out structure as well. So I think to Kojima's credits, things like that, he's really aware of what the player has been doing before the game comes out. And I think that's really great. Well, an, an updating on that could have been Ground Zero coming out before MGS5, right? Because it's essentially a VR, a more uh, glamorous VR mission, maybe. Uh, and you can get hundreds of hours of gameplay out of that one location, as Neil will attest. Um, but I think that it's interesting that you could play a scenario like that and to your point about the VR missions and think, oh, well, if I go into this, maybe I could be, a, I could just blow through this game and then he's going to throw these curveballs at you both from a gameplay perspective, but, but more importantly and lastingly, I think, is narratively speaking. Because just because you can kind of 
begin to anticipate perhaps uh, what the gameplay could entail. At the end of the day, there's no way, and I'll keep coming back to this, but there's no way that you could foresee a boss fight that involves a man planting bombs while wearing roller skates, right? There's no VR mission that could ever (laughs) properly prepare you for that. Um, And it's an, it's again, it's a testament to just his, his perception of gamers, his understanding of games that is definitely ahead of the time period in which a majority of his games came out in and whatnot. And yeah, it makes for a, uh, fairly remarkable series for a number amount of reasons. Yeah. Like I said before, he's, you know, He's not very good at explaining it, I think, just you know, because of the language barrier in a lot of cases, um, explaining his games. And that's the sound bites that people get mm-hmm. of him and his games. And that's why they're the ones that are always mocked and derided and like taken or whatever. But uh, I think immediately back to the quiet situation, you know, with the whole, you know, like, oh, why is she wearing next to nothing? And, course he came out with the whole excuse of you know she bruised for her skin which you know if you actually knew about the series it's like okay well that's you know that makes sense because someone else has done that in the past and you know that ends up being the connection you know that because there's uh this parasite is basically born from the end uh, you know from research on the end and his uh, you know how he used to do his camouflaging and stuff um and it was almost plant-like in how he was, you know, that she essentially has the same powers. You know, and, but of course, because he didn't want to spoil that, you know, as much, is a great fan of uh, not wanting to spoil the obvious, you know, sometimes, uh, which, to his detriment. I think there's stuff like that, you know, where it's like, yeah, we get it. And it's like, if you, if you just say it's because it has something to do with the end, people go, all right. I mean, you're still a perv to put in there uh, in no clothes because you didn't do that at the end. But yeah, fair enough. <laughs> we'll at least take you on that. But yeah. Instead, it was a the whole ashamed of your words and deeds and all that sort of stuff. And much like with the um, you know, little stuff with Death Stranding and the whole the stick and the rope and all that. And it's like he he helped with a team behind him. He communicates his messages far better in the games than he does by talking about them it's I mean I found that about anything about him you know he likes to talk about stuff to a degree and language generally being the problem I think he a lot of stuff just gets lost in translation or he he can't quite find a way to say what he wants to say in that way which you know is very true of many people who are artistically talented you know uh, they can't necessarily speak their way through things or write it down or whatever they have one specific way they can do stuff and he has that yeah it's also uh, I relate it to like my experience with Kojima games is that uh, I relate it to like Mads Mikaelson when he met with him to discuss the idea for Death Stranding and I, I guess in the interview Mads says like oh he sat me down he told me this thing and I was just like what the fuck is he talking about but then once he actually got his hands on and that was me paraphrasing uh once he got his hands on the game it's began to at least make more sense and that's been my experience and my approach moving forwards with a lot of kojima games in that sometimes the ideas and the concepts are way beyond me and i can't envision this ever working on paper or what is introduced in a brief snippet at a presser or a trailer but He's got. I've gotten to the point where I've played so many of his games and I've gone back and found new value in re-experiencing them that it's one of those things where it's like, it might not always work for me, but I give him 
benefit of the doubt a majority of time with things that it's like I'm not I'm going to reserve some judgment until I actually get to play it and see how this all fleshes out. And I mean, in the case of Metal Gear, getting to see how it fleshes out and uh, connects to past and potentially future games, right? I mean, the example of that would be something like Metal Gear Acid, where I was like, when that first came out and I was going to get that for PSP and whatnot, I was like, how the hell does a card-based game, how is that going to fit into the Metal Gear franchise and whatnot? And then I was like, well, you can see how it has all these various elements that tie into the larger consciousness of Metal Gear and whatnot, and how at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter the gameplay, maybe. It's more about how it fits into the world and does it draw from similar attributes and themes that the other game does. Yeah, I mean, that, that's true of so many things. You know, when you're passionate about something, it's very easy to go, how can you not see this? How can you not see what it's actually about? Or about that, you know, I, you know <laughs> I, we can sit here evangelizing Kojima and Metal Gear and stuff, and in some ways we sound no different than the people that think Zack Snyder's some sort of genius. Yeah, so, but, yeah, so I, I'd like to think that we're probably seeing a little more weight in what we're talking about than that, you know. Um, you know, apologies to Zack Snyder fans. So. Um, <laughs> he made a good film once, so you know. Um, yeah, so I, I get it. You know, it I. Uh, a lot of the games I love that are like devices I like that that they are you know I like because it usually means someone's made something interesting uh, and that's, that's very true with Kojima's games constantly it's like I'm never going to be the sort of person that rages about uh, you know, his games getting a, a 3 out of 10 or something because I, no doubt I probably like it and I can see why it could piss people off I think we discussed this before when um we're talking about Virginia briefly uh, by Variable State. It's like that game literally did get like three out of ten reviews in one place, some places, and the highest scores in others. And I was like, I get it, I totally get it because it's just something that isn't like most mm. things. And you know, everyone has their own idea of what games should be and what they really like. And I think being open-minded helps. You know, and you know, as much as people will say they are open-minded about. Oh, I like all kinds of games like that. There's always going to be something that doesn't gel with you. And it just happens to be that Kojima's one of those things that does. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think in, that's for, definitely for uh, for sure in terms of Kojima and whether it be the Metal Gear or the uh, Death Stranding universe, right? It's this thing where maybe at first it doesn't sound like, how could this any of this work or make any sense? But yeah. he's got this way of sort of blending these sort of outlandish ideas to mm. greater themes and whatnot. And it, I, again, like it comes back to, it's not groundbreaking to say, but his love of film in a lot of ways permeates into not only his storytelling, but also in his approach to gameplay in a lot of ways. Of course, his love of games in general also feeds into that, but he's a man that knows how to take the most abstract of ideas and he's able to make them palatable into gameplay yeah. that, I mean, if, let's take like Metal Gear Solid 3 for instance like that game plays just as well as it does today even if it doesn't have this overarching story about supernatural craziness and clones and body doubles and all these things he's just a man that knows how to blend storytelling with gameplay in a way that's unique and yet they still have their own merits even if the other element is not there but uh, Daryl it was a pleasure having you on today to talk about uh, horror and MGS2 and also Metal Gear in general yeah, thanks, Jeff. Really enjoyed myself. It's been great just to kind of, you know, um, just spill out my love for the series, really. <laughs> it's been great. Also, one last reminder to our uh, listeners to please be on the lookout for Daryl's book, The Making of Tomb Raider. 
which will be releasing on October 25th. And uh, give his podcast Pal Keys a listen. And you can follow him on Twitter at Daryl Baxter. Thanks again, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.